Gracious Father, we thank you this morning, first for this Lord's Day, where we have the privilege of worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, freely. We know that there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are not able to worship you as we can. So, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for being able to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we thank you for the great glory of the gospel that you have brought us, those of us who are in you from a darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, we thank you that through the work of Christ on the cross, you rescued us from the domain of darkness and you translated us into your kingdom of heavenly light making us fit to share in the inheritance of the saints. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Paul, as we read earlier today, that though he was an insolent man, he was violently arrogant, though he was a blasphemer, Lord, that you saved him from his sins. The very church, the very gospel that he tried to destroy, he became a terrible of. And Lord, all who believe can testify likewise that we were not worthy of, of we're not, we were not worthy candidates of being saved because we were all sinners. But Lord, you sought to save us. And we honor your name this morning because of your transforming power in our lives. You have put a new song in our mouths, a song of perpetual praise to you. Lord, we thank you for the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You transformed our lives from the inside out. Lord, we rejoice in the assurance that our sins are forgiven. We're profoundly aware of our eternal indebtedness to Christ. Lord, we will never be able to repay him for the great debt that he paid on the cross. He paid an incomprehensible incalculable price to set us free. And Lord, we know that we are now free indeed. We are free from the enslavement to the law. And we are free from the bondage to sin. Lord, I pray this morning for those of us who are believers, enable us to stand firm in that freedom. Thank God our heart and seal our deliverance so that we should never again be subject to any yoke of bondage other than the yoke that Christ provides. Lord, we know that apart from your gracious empowerment by your spirit, all of our attempts at godly love and godly living and faithful service are empty. Lord, apart from the Holy Spirit's enablement, we neither could nor would honor Jesus as Lord. Lord, apart from the intercessory work of Christ as our high priest, we know that we will falter, that we will fail. We know that we will never live up to your standard without the intercessory work of Christ, acting on our behalf as our advocate, as he stands in our place before you. Lord, apart from the grace that you gave us to persevere, we will surely fall away. And Lord, most importantly, apart from the purifying power of your word, we could never be fit for heaven. 
Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for you being our Heavenly Father and caring for us. So, Lord, grant us more grace to be diligent in our duties, to be faithful in our devotion to Christ, to be industrious in the works of the gospel, to be clear in our testimony and our life to the world, to be steadfast in our defense of the truth, and untiring in our service to you. Lord, as believers here at the Living Church, may all of our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. May every aspect of our lives bring honor to our Savior, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may everything we say and everything we do bring you glory and honor. And Lord, I pray this morning also for the faithful brethren, the faithful men who are proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ throughout this area. Lord, we pray for Bob at Anderson Bible Church and Carlton at Grace Fellowship and Phil at Redeema Church and Anthony at uh, Christian uh, Fellowship. Lord, we also pray for Brother Justin at Mountain View. Lord, we pray for um, Brother Cody Hill at Iron City. We pray for Brother Steve Baines at Hope Presbyterian. We pray for our brothers, uh, Gaza J, Yegar, and Josephus Brown over in Liberia. Lord, we also pray for my dear brother, uh, Sylvester, over in Zimbabwe. He is uh, preaching his first sermon in a few months, recovering from a broken leg. He's beginning the gospel of John today. I had a chance to uh, encourage him uh, this morning uh, via text message. Lord, we pray for him as he prepares to enter the pulpit again at his church. Lord, pray for all other like-minded men who are shepherding their churches faithfully, that you may be with them, that you may empower them by your spirit to lead their churches well. And Lord, now we pray for the preaching of the gospel. Lord, we often value other things, but today we need to look at heaven. We need to look at our risen, exalted Savior. We need to look at your glory. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to see the value and the treasure that you are. Lord, I pray that we would lose our enamoring with this world and the way that we are so caught up in the things here. Lord, give us heavenly minds as we consider heavenly things. Teach us, Lord. Teach us by your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that you will rebuke the evil one and he will not distract us, but that our minds might hear your truth with focus. Lord, give us focused minds and hearts. Help us to hear your word as it is an authority and not the word of the preacher. Help us, Lord, to welcome it as such as we humble ourselves before you. So, Lord, instruct us, instruct me. We pray for your illumination in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Let us turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. We're continuing. 
our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. This is our 22nd sermon in this book. We spent the first five months in the first three chapters of this book, and now we enter into the second part of Paul's letter to the saints at Ephesus. We get into the practical part of this book, the practical applications. As we talked about with many of Paul's letters, uh, particularly uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, the first half of the book is usually laying down doctrinal truths, and then the second half is laying down the application of that doctrine. So this morning, this is what we uh, will be doing, going into the fourth chapter of this book. So this morning, uh, we're going to talk about walking in unity. Part one, we're going to spend a couple of weeks in the first 16 verses of this chapter. So this morning, our focus is going to be uh, verses one through six of chapter four. But I'm going to read the first uh, 16 verses, I think, of this chapter to get the context of what we're looking at this morning. So this is the word of the Lord. Ephesians 4 and 1, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Do we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working, by which every part does its share, can cause growth of the body for the edifying of itself. I mean, that is the opening section of this chapter, this half of the book. And again, as we're noting, this second half of the book 
continues, it is not disconnected from the first part of this book. The first part of this book, Paul established doctrinal truths. We talked about that last week when we got to the end of chapter 3, that he establishes his audience who are the saints of God, those who are the called out ones, those who are by grace through faith are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who this letter uh, was written to. So Paul focused in the first three chapters, the calling of the Christian and the construction of uh, the church. And then now in the second half of the book, he focuses on the conduct of the church, how we are to walk. We talked about the importance of having our identity in who we are in Christ. And that is the most important thing about us as believers, who we are in Christ. Not We talked about not our skin color, not the kind of job we have, not where we live, not who our family is, or anything like that. Our identity should be in who we are in Christ. That is the most important thing about us, whether we are in Christ or not, whether we are truly children of God by faith or not. That is our most important identity. Now, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, as Paul talked about. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew or Gentile. Those things do not matter. Are you in Christ or are you not? Are you a child of God by faith in Christ or are you a child of Satan by rejecting Christ as your Lord and Savior? There are only one of two ways to go. So our identity is in who we are in Christ, our position before God in Christ. That is the most important identity we have. So with that in mind, with that in light, with that in view, how do we walk as saints? How do we walk as the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we walk as being adopted into God's household as one of his children? How do we walk in light of the fact that we have been brought from being dead, as it said in Ephesians 2, to being made alive? How do we walk? How do we live now that we call ourselves Christians? Because many people profess Christ, but in their works they deny him. They're false converts, they're false believers, they're, as Paul said, they're false brethren. Many people name the name of Christ because it sounds good, it, it earns them good social, social standing, it looks good on their obituary that they gave their life to Christ at an early age. But you look at the tone and tenor of their life how they live before man and how they live for, before God and you don't see anything Christian about their life. Nothing at all. And going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Even becoming a member of a church doesn't make you a Christian because a lot of churches have very loose requirements for membership. The church, the true church, we're going to talk about this in our message this morning. The true church is made up of regenerate believers, those who are saved. They make up the true church. So how are we living? Paul is going to lay it out 
over the next three chapters, chapters four, chapters five, and chapter six, we're going to spend the next few months uh, exegeting this text as we always do, going through, seeing what it is to walk as a believer now that our identity has been established. So our focus again is verses one through six, and I'll read them just one more time as we get ready to uh, exposit this text. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, who is through all, and in you all. You know what the focus on the word one? Unity. That's what we're talking about this morning and next week. Walking in unity. What does it mean? How does that look? How can you walk in unity? What does it mean to be united? How can unity be achieved in the church? Remember, Paul's audience is not the world. His audience is the church. His audience is the saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Talk to the saints. So he's talking about unity in the church, not unity with the world, not unity with worldly ideologies and worldly philosophies, not unity with pagans, not unity with those who reject God, those who hate God. He's not talking about unity with them because we can't be united. The Bible says, how can two walk together except they agree? So our text this morning. One thing I want to begin with is this, is that unity doesn't just happen. It does not just happen. Unity is something that has to be worked at. But it comes at a cost. We live in a world where everyone is seeking unity, right? You look at the world's efforts at unity. Have any of them succeeded? No. We have an organization, a uh, multinational organization called the United Nations. Even in the United Nations, which comprises over 196 countries, there's no unity. You have people calling for unity between blacks and whites. Those calls have been going on for over the last 100 or so years. Has there been true unity? No. It's not that it can't be. It's, it's that it's not being done the right way and for the right reasons. This world, people, will never achieve true unity. And I'll tell you why true unity will never be achieved according to the world and by the world's standards. Remember, who is the world? The world is the systems, the ideologies, and the philosophies that are against God, against Scripture. The systems of this world hate God 
They hate biblical truth. Why do you think they're trying to destroy the church? Why do you think they have infiltrated the church to try to destroy her? Because they hate the church. They hate Christ. They have a false view of Christ. Their only view of Christ is that he was a good man. He had some good sayings. He did some good things. He healed the sick. He clothed the naked. He fed the poor. That's all the world thinks about our Savior. That's their definition of Jesus. That he was a wise man who said some wise things. A man who said, love your neighbor. A man who said it's better to give than to receive. A man who said he is with, without sin, let them cast the first stone. They just they just whittled Jesus down to some out of context uh, phrases and some of the words that he said. The world doesn't look at the true Jesus, the God man. The word become flesh. They don't look to Jesus as that. As the word who became flesh. They don't look to Christ as the only savior of their souls. They don't look at Christ as the only one who can save them from their sins. They don't even look at Christ as the one who went to the cross and died for their sins. Why? Because they treat Easter like it's all about Easter Bunny as it is. Not about Christ raising from the dead, triumphing over death, and causing death to lose its sting, and the grave is victory. That's the world. They don't worship the same Christ, the same God. So you can't be in unity with people who have that worldview. Because it is diametrically opposed. The world will never achieve unity because they are dead. They're in their sins, as Paul says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were children of wrath. They are rebelling against God. So true unity can only be achieved one way. And that is in Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who unites all believers. Unity apart from the Holy Spirit's work is impossible. It would never, ever, ever work. You can take that to the bank and deposit it and earn interest. Unity apart from the work of the Spirit would never happen. Remember what I always say. Anytime you try to build a wall while denying the God who created it, it can't work because it won't work. It can't. It will never work. So Paul begins by saying the what of unity. He says, I therefore a prisoner. We talked about this a few weeks ago that Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter to Ephesians, and we go back to the book of Acts to see what led him to be in prison because he was preaching the gospel uh, to the Gentiles and it caused a riot in Jerusalem. 
and use it in prison waiting to go before Caesar. So Paul is out of prison, and remember he says he's a prisoner of the Lord, he's not a prisoner of Caesar. He's a prisoner because he was doing the Lord's work. He says, as a prisoner, I beseech you. So the first thing Paul says is that unity is urgent. Unity is urgent. Unity is a priority. It is a sense of urgency. He says, I beseech you. So Paul is saying the urgency of unity. And what harkens to my mind is Psalm 133, verses 1 through 2, where the psalmist says, Behold how good and excellent and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. That is why unity is urgent, because it is it is pleasant. Unity is pleasant to God. It is a priority to him. So when Paul says, I beseech you, he's saying that this unity is urgent, that it is important, that it is a first priority. Also, Jesus prayed for unity among his people. John 17 and 20, and in his uh, high priestly prayer, Jesus said here in John 17 and 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And he's talking about us, those who believe in him now. That they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. So Jesus prayed for unity in the church. Now I must say this. Why is there disunity in the church? The disunity in the church comes over something that we should not be in unity over and that is false doctrine. People that are preaching false doctrine. Teaching false theology. You can't be in unity with them. So if you're talking about when Christ is praying for unity, he wasn't talking about some kumbaya, you know, let everybody just get along, the Rodney King theology, you know, can't we all just get along? That's not the kind of unity he was talking about. When Christ was praying for unity, he was praying for unity in him. That's why he says, he and the Father is one. This is he and the Father are united together. They are in agreement with each other. The unity in the church has to be the same way. But you can't be united with people who believe in false theology. We're not going to be in unity with a church that hangs a rainbow flag out in front of, of its uh, windows. Because they believe in a false ideology. They believe in a false worldview. Just because they have church in their name or just because they have a nice edifice, we can't be in unity with the church that espouses and that promotes uh, sexual immorality and perversion. 
That's not the kind of unity Christ was praying for. He was praying for the true church that the true church be united in him. That's what he was praying for. So when Paul was talking about the urgency of unity, this is what he was talking about. That unity should be taken seriously. So then it says, I urge you to do what? Walk worthy. Now walk in a manner worthy. A worthy walk. A worthy walk. To walk worthy. It's a call basically to walk on a plane that indicates our position in Christ. What is the calling that we have? Go back to the very first chapter and first verse of this book. Paul says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. So as believers, we ought to walk worthy of that calling as saints. And again, we've said this a million times, and we'll keep saying it. Saint doesn't mean someone who's perfect. And I told y'all, you know, we came from the holiness church where, you know, we called each other saints. Praise the Lord, saints, and all this stuff. And, and we thought that, I thought that saints was a special class of Christian who were more holy than everybody else. But a saint is just a believer. They called out on someone who is called out from the world, who's separate from the world, who doesn't live like the world, who doesn't think like the world, who doesn't talk like the world. They are the called out one. That's where we get the word sanctified from, to be called out, to be separate. You are a, a holy generation. You are a peculiar people. You're called out. So as we are called out of the world, guess what? We're to walk worthy of their calling. We are not to walk like the world. We're not to talk like the world talks. We're not to use the world's language. The word walk is a Jewish metaphor for conducting or behaving oneself. So he says walk worthy. These Believers in the first century knew what he meant, that it meant how you conduct yourself or how you behave yourself. We are to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. What is that vocation? To be saints, to be faithful. We are to walk worthy of that. He's begging them. It reminds me of the scripture in Philippians 1 and 27, where Paul tells them, only let your walk be as become the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whether I come and see you or whether I be absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And Paul never made it to Philippi. He wanted to hear the reports that these Philippian Christians are walking in the faith. They're walking as the uh, come of the gospel of Christ. 
when people see our life as believers. They should see that. Our walk is not going to be perfect, but it's going to be consistent. We're going to walk with integrity. Are we going to sin? Yes. Are we going to live in sin? No. Are we going to habitually sin? No, because no believer can habitually sin in unrepentant sin. But yes, we are going to sin. But when we sin, we do what? We confess our sins. And we repent of them. We turn from them. We constantly struggle against those sins. We constantly pray and ask God, Lord, take these sins away from me. That's how walking worthy looks. And we're not to walk in isolation as individuals. We walk together as believers. He's talking to the saints. He says that you may walk worthy. It is a worthy walk. He says this in Colossians 1 and 10. Listen to this. That you may walk worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That we may walk worthy of the Lord. That was his prayer for the Colossian church. That is my prayer for our church. That is my prayer for all of us. That as we, no matter whether we're in school, whether we're in work, whether we're in the home, whether we're out in the public square, that we may walk worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing him. This is all how unity begins. Our walk was important to Paul, and it should be to us. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 12, Paul says this, that you may walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You walk as if you belong to whose kingdom? God's kingdom, the kingdom of light, not the kingdom of darkness. So Paul opens up this section by saying that we are to walk worthy of the call in which we have been called. And how are we to do this? He lists four characteristics. Humility, gentleness, patience, and eagerness. We're going to look at each of these. Our walk is not to put the focus on us. That's the main thing we have to remember. It is not to put the focus on us. It is not about us. Our walk in Christ has nothing to do with us. It all has to do with him. We can't go around bragging and boasting about our walk. So we're looking at the how of unity in verses 2 and 3. But first he says with humility. We talk about this all the time. If a person says they're humble, they're actually proud of their humility. <laughs> if you describe yourself as being humble, that means you're proud. You're proud of your humility, which is actually pride and not humility. Other people recognize your humility, not you. So he says, first, we walk with humility, thinking 
think loneliness. And why does Paul write this? This this smacks in the face of the culture in which he lived. Because pride was highly prized by the Romans during Paul's day. The Romans were not humble people. They prided themselves on pride. But this smacks in the face of that culture. Humility was distasteful in the Roman culture. And you know, honestly, in our society, humility is distasteful. People are all about what? Being proud, boasting, boasting of themselves, boasting of themselves on social media. We're so proud of ourselves that we want people to see pictures of us on social media. As Goldie Bible would say, if you can't say amen, say ouch. We want people to be proud of us, right? Our accomplishments, how good our family looks, how good we look. We filter our pictures, don't we? We want to take away all the wrinkles and the spots and the blemishes. Again, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Why? Because it's pride. Humility says, yes, I have wrinkles. Yes, I have crow's feet. Yes, I have spots on my face. Yes, my, my nose is not, uh, according to the world standards, perfectly shaped. My lips are not full enough or they're too big. My body is not curvaceous. So we apply the filters. Because of what? Pride is the default of the human heart. Humility is not. Humility comes from a work of the spirit deep down in our heart. When we pursue the way of loneliness, not the way of self-exaltation, not the way of self-worship, not the way of wanting people to worship us. Our default is pride. Our default is the desire for people to worship us. Remember the great reformer John Calvin. You have to always be reminded of this. John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. The human heart is an idol factory, always manufacturing idols, always. Our default is pride. And that was the case in Paul's day. So when Paul said, how do you achieve unity? Humility. Pride is selfish and causes division. Humility looks out for others. Pride is self-seeking, self-aggrandizement, self-pleasing. Pride is how, how, how is I going to look? How is it going to make me look? That's what pride does. Pride is just concerned about how does this affect me? Humility, how does this affect the body of Christ? How does this affect my family? How does this affect my husband, my wife? How does this reflect on my children? How does it reflect on my household? That's what humility does. Pride says, I don't care who it affects. 
blood without a seed will look like. Think about the young lady that was in the news. Quali Smollett. Quali Russell. What she did was an act of pride. She didn't think about others. She didn't think about her actions and how they would affect law enforcement. How they would affect people who were praying for her. How it would affect her parents, the neighborhood she lived in, her sorority, her job. That was an act of pride. She's only thought about herself. When we do things without thinking about how they will affect others, that's pride. Children, same thing. Got a 15 year old that ran away from home and gone for six days here in this county. She didn't think about how that will affect her family, her parents. No parent wants their child running away from home. Especially a girl. Girls are more vulnerable to sex trafficking and all those things. That was stupid. That was prideful because she was only thinking of who? Herself. That's what pride does. Pride causes you to gaze in the mirror. Looking at yourself. Thinking that you're the center of the world. That you're the most important thing since sliced bread. That was the culture in Paul's day. That does not bring unity. Pride divides. It tears apart. Look how many people were angry at Carly Russell when they found out that it was fake. That's what pride does. It, 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 it divides. It, it tears apart. People have pride, pride in their skin color. Same thing. It divides. It tears apart. All our nation focuses on is race. Everything has to be racialized. And what has it caused? As Christians, we talk about this in church all the time. We have to think biblically. Let the world clamor over a person's skin color. That is not befitting of Christians. That does not bring unity in the church. When you focus on skin color. You know why a lot of people... And I'm just being honest, I'm, I'm going to keep it a buck, as the young people would say. You know, a lot of people would say that Carly Russell, one, because she's a black female. You got a lot of black females who are missing, and they're saying that they're not getting enough uh, attention in the media. And because she faked it, it made it harder for other missing black women. And that's why some black people are upset at her. They're upset at her for the wrong reason. It should be upset at her because what she did was wrong. Not because of what her skin color is. Not because she's a black female who made it harder for uh, other missing black women to be searched for. That's the wrong focus. But again, as I said earlier, that's the world's thinking. You can't be united with that. Because that's not biblical. You should be indignant because what she did was wrong, not because of her skin color. If it's wrong, it's wrong. All the the purpose is black. person is black, white, or purple. Or orange. It doesn't matter. It was wrong. Those things don't bring unity. 
But what does Paul say instead? Humility. You think more on others. You look out for others. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 3 in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, the humble, and humble doesn't mean being a doorstop or a mat. That's not what it means to be humble. Humble, humility means, in essence, having a right estimation of yourself. That's what it means to have the right estimation of yourself. Paul said in Acts 20 about humility in verse 18, when he gave his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, the very church that we're preaching through right now, the letter, this is what he said to the Ephesian elders. Acts 20 and 18, Paul says, and when they came, they had come to him, rather. He said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. And this is how he said he lived among them. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of Jews. So what could Paul say about his ministry in Ephesus? That he did it with what? Humility. They can never accuse Paul of pride. He did his ministry among them with humility. He was humble. He could testify to that. Philippians 2, Paul says this. 2 and 3. Let nothing be done through Selfish ambition, he's speaking to the church, talking to the saints in church. Nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceits. That means thinking too highly of yourself. But in lowliness of mind, in humility, let each esteem others better than himself. You know when I talked about these so-called apostles? I say so-called because there's no such thing. These self-appointed apostles, who are they all about promoting? Themselves. They all about promoting themselves. Paul says that nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let's each Esteem others better than themselves. They're more about being esteemed than esteeming other people. And they'll get upset at you if you don't esteem them. They'll throw shade in the Facebook post. Some people need to stay in their lane. Some people need to learn to honor authority. Me and Fran don't sound like that. That's what they do. And we know they're talking to people in that church that are not esteeming them enough. They're not addressing them by their, quote, title. That's not humility. Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Then he says in verse 4 of Philippians 2, 
that each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's how humility looks. And that achieves unity. It's like this in organizations outside of the church. If you have a supervisor or a boss or manager or whatever, the people whom you are called on your job, you'll run through the wall for them if you know that they're looking out for your interests and not just their own. You'll do anything for them. If they are servant leaders. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to do what? Serve. That's humility. And that's how we ought to be in the church. We should look for people to serve us. We should look to who can we serve. What can I do today to serve the people of God? Not what can I do to be served. Now, I talked about this before, uh, the former uh, denomination we were in when, when we would have our big meetings in Birmingham at Bishop Roby's church. And, you know, after church service, they had a, uh, you know, they would feed everybody. Everybody else was sitting in the room. You know, you got two, 3,000 people at the church and the dining room is only big enough for them, maybe 500. And they would send all the overseers and, and, and bishops, you know, up front, you know, with their wives and everything. They would get their food first. And all of us peasants had to stand in line, in a long line for one to two hours getting our plates. While the overseers and the bishops, you know, get to have the, the, the cooks bringing them their food. They're sitting down eating and feeding their faces. And all of us stand in line waiting on our We said, well, yeah, you should honor the leaders and stuff. That's, that is true at the same time. What it does, it creates a hierarchy in the church that shouldn't exist. I try to set that example when we have a church meal. I usually be last. Not sure about you first. I'll have a special parking spot that it says pastor. You know, some churches, that's, that's what you see. Pastor only. And it's like right by the door. Right. <laughs> The pastor, the pastor's, the pastor's parking spot is closer than the business parking spot. But that's not going to achieve unity in the church. Some people say, "Why the pastor got to have a close parking spot?" You know, he, 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 you know, he got two legs just like me. He can walk. Now you know, handicapped accessible. That's different, but that's not the case with a lot of these churches. Then the first, the, the, the pastor's wife got her own spot. <laughs> Best home church that pastor and first lady. There's only one first lady, that's the president's wife. Anyway, they have the pastor and first lady spot right up front. Get special treatment. Does that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't mean, again, we don't want to fall to the two ditches I always talk about. Does that mean that you don't treat your pastor and pastor's wife well? That's not what it means, but it's the message that it sends. It's not, it's not humility. That doesn't unite. Looking out for others does. The same way in the church, most importantly, but it's the same way in life. Think about friendships. You got that one friend that's always about themselves. Nobody well, wants to be around them. People tolerate them. 
It's hard. So he says first, the how is to be humble. And then he says with gentleness. So humility with gentleness and gentleness. And what gentleness in essence means is being tolerant of the faults of others. Being tolerant of the shortcomings of other believers. Being tolerant with the quibbles of other believers. Because after all, people, we don't all have the greatest personality. Ouch. We think we do. But there's some things about uh, 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 me that some people may not like. But that's okay. That's just my personality. I know I talk too loud. It's supposed to be. <laughs> my wife tells me, talk, talk down. You know? But I, sometimes my voice, my voice fans. But gentleness is something that should be befitting for Christians because when you're humble, you're going to be gentle. You're going to be able to see the thoughts of others and bear with them. You're not going to see it as a big problem with them, but a lesser problem with you. When you're humble, you're going to see their problem and say, you know, I have some too. When I'm talking about skin problems, something like personality, different things like that. Every church has those kind of people, and that's okay. How we deal with them is what matters. How we deal with them that builds unity that matters. And as believers, we don't just tolerate each other. We love each other. So we ought to be gentle. We should use gentle speech when talking with and to believers. Our speech toward the saints should be Gentle. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. We find that in Galatians 5. Colossians 4 and 6 say, our, our speech should always be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer everyone. We speak to each other gently as believers with great care and concern for them. So how is unity achieved through humility, through gentleness, and also patience? Not patient like being patient, <laughs> but patience. Patience is something that some of us probably lack in, right? Amen to the glory of God. You have to raise your hand when asked this question, but just think about it. Some of us are very impatient people with others. Let's raise your hand. Well, I would say, what, tell the truth to shame the devil? No. <laughs> Some of us struggle with patience. Let's get in, in, inside your hand tonight. We're impatient in traffic. We're driving some, driving somebody to slow this morning, no green drive. And we're praying. I'm like, man, driving slow. And they turn to Burger King. Then I saw the little blue tag hanging from their uh, rearview mirror, and I felt bad. That may be that may be me in twenty years. I'm seventy one years old. Maybe me in ten years. I'm guilty of. I like keeping my speed up. You know how it is. Try to cut in front of you real slow, 
When you got your speed going and you got to slow down, sometimes you're a horn pounder. Where the professional horn pounders at in the house? Where the professional horn pounders? Like lay on that horn. <laughs> And some of you do it for a long time, but they're really angry, right? <laughs> they're impatient. We can be impatient in traffic. We can be impatient at work. Dealing with our co-workers. Impatient dealing with people's personalities. But in the Greek, patient means it literally means a long time before one gets angry. That's what the Greek word for patience means. Macrothemia, which means a long time before one gets angry. It, 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 it means by a person with a long fuse as opposed to a what? Short fuse. It is often translated long suffering, suffering long. A man. It describes, this, this, this should cause us to think about being patient. It describes the manner in which God puts up with sinful humanity. How long did it take to build the ark? 120 years. That's how patient God was with man as that ark was being built. Man had 120 years turn to God before he destroyed the world by blood. Guess what? Only eight people made it on that boat. But God was patient with them. Don't you know God is patient with sinners? Those of us who are not saved, God is patient with you. But the patience of God, the goodness of God should lead to repentance. God is patient with us a long time before he gets angry. Don't we thank God for that? God doesn't have a short fuse. He's not some, some short-tempered uh, kid when he doesn't get his way. He's a sovereign God. He's a sovereign creator. He, he, he doesn't lose his temper. God doesn't lose his cool. He's patient. He's patient with the sinner. So guess what, friends? If God is patient with us as sinners, we have to be patient with who? One another. Because impatience doesn't bring unity. As believers, we're impatient with each other. We, we suffer long with each other. We bear with one another, which is the next one here. But we ought to be patient with each other. We ought to be long suffering. We ought to be long tempered. We ought to be slow to anger. God is described as slow to anger. Exodus 34 to 6 The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. God is long suffering. Nehemiah 9 and 17, in his prayer, he said, they refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, 
You're not forsaking me. He's going back to the wilderness in his prayer. God is patient. We as believers ought to be patient with one another. When we are short with each other, it does not bring unity. It does not bring unity at all. Then the other how? With patience, forbearing one another, or bearing with one another. How? In love. Forbearance means to put up with. Forbearance basically it further defines uh, patience. It's basically describing how patience works itself out in our social interactions within the church. How do we show patience by forbearing one another, by putting up with others? And what is it? How does this look? We have to put up with the faults, the weaknesses of others, the clerk, I mean the quirks of others. That's how we put up. We put up with the faults of other believers. We put up with the weaknesses of believers. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, I have to do that. Then the pastor has to go on 13 years. By God's grace with his help, I've had to put up with a lot of different personalities. But that is part of pastoral work. But also as the body of Christ, it's the same thing. We put up with each other. Put up with the weaknesses of each other. Put up with the new believers. Put up with the ones who've been saved for a while but are still weak in the faith. You can't just say, man, they, they just, you know, you get exasperated with them. No, that is not how we should be as believers. Force and trouble. Because there's some things about us that people have to put up with. We can't get exasperated with each other. I'm just, damn it, that, that just, that just too much. Oh, what's so too much? <laughs> I mean, look at our sins put Jesus on the cross. I mean, who, who, who are we to say that? Our sins are too much. For us to bear, but Christ bore them for us. So what makes us more special than anyone else to put up with? We're not. Again, it goes back to humility. So we forbear, we put up with. Instead of looking out, and this is two believers, instead of looking out for faults in someone, we should pray for them or even disciple them. You don't mean to overlook them. You pray for them. You disciple them. You you, you help them grow in the faith. We ought to love each other deeply, 1 Peter 4 and 8 says. As believers, when we love it, you know what? In the context of the marriage, I'm just speaking for myself. Sometimes, you know, my wife and I married 24 years, going on 25. Sometimes, I'm a hard person to deal with. Sometimes I do some stupid things. <coughs> This pastor one of our perfect husband, people. Sometimes I do stupid things. But my wife forbears me. 
And she doesn't do stupid things because she's a wife. Wives don't do stupid things. <laughs> but whatever faults my wife has, guess what? I fall bad them. Because she's my wife. She's fresh in my flesh, bald in my bones. We're, we're one this union. We're one in Christ. We're in one flesh union. She belongs to me, and I belong to her as we both belong to Christ. We have that covenant. So I forbear her because of that, that covenant that we have with each other. The sickness and health, the richer, the rich and poor. Still what? Death separates us. So with that, you know, you have people who say, oh, irreconcilable differences. It basically means they just couldn't get along with each other. That's basically what irreconcilable differences mean. Differences can be reconciled, but it takes humility to bring reconciliation. And most of the time in those situations, there's no humility. There's no gospel humility. So we forbear one another. We Put up with others. We love each other deeply. And then lastly, he says here, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're eager to do it. This is the heart of the matter right here, having eagerness. We have to, in other words, make every effort as believers to keep unity within the context of the body of Christ. We have to make every effort to do this. It has to be an eagerness to have unity in the body. Eager to keep the unity of the spirit. This is the heart of the matter. And keeping implies Guarding or preserving. We are to guard and preserve unity within the church. Unity is our responsibility through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Who produces the unity of the church? The Holy Spirit does. That's why it says, eager to maintain the unity of what? The Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who produces this unity. We must have a passion for unity. We make every effort. We don't create unity. We preserve it, maintain it. The Holy Spirit, let me say this again. The Holy Spirit is who creates unity in the church. We'll look at this next week. We'll look at uh, the series of wands, verses 4 through 6. But it is the Spirit who unites us together. And what we ought to do is to preserve or to guard or to keep that in the bond of peace. And peace is not the absence of comfort. This peace is the peace that begins with God. It's a state of reconciliation and love. And it acts as a bond to unite believers in Christ. We don't create unity. 
but we are to preserve the unity that has already been established by the Spirit of God, who dwells within every believer. That goes all the way back to the beginning where I said you can't be united with someone who's not in Christ because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. You can't be united. With someone who is not spirit filled. Because they don't have the same spirit. They don't have the same goals in mind. Amen? Amen. Let us pray as we close out. Lord, we first of all thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that the word is effective in changing our hearts and causing us to be like Christ. Lord, our hearts can be dull, but I pray that you make them alive as we have heard from heaven. We pray, Lord, that your wisdom has been preached, that your word will be received with humility and submission, that you have instructed us so that we may give you glory. Lord, cause us to respond to this word by understanding what you have said and obeying what you have commanded. Well, may the word that we have heard this morning bear fruit in our lives and produce Psalm 100-fold, Psalm 60-fold, Psalm 30-fold. And Lord, may this word be used to convict sinners and bring them to repentance and a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can become part of this glorious body called the church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.